Ben, you may be seated. If you do so, let me encourage you to join me now in taking your copy of God's Word, and we will turn together to our piece of passage. Sorry, I saw some candy in my mouth. Uh, turn together to our passage for this morning, for this Easter morning, which is Luke 22, uh, verses 54 through 62. So Luke 22, 54 through 62. And of course, this is Easter morning, no surprise there. Uh, we look our best, we are singing our Christmas favorite summer, sorry, Easter. Let me get my mind straight here. We are Easter, right? We're singing our favorite Easter carols and hymns and, and all that. But as we said to the children, we prayed, this isn't just tradition. Uh, this, is, this is something that really historically happened. One of the greatest evidences we have of Christianity is the fact that there is no tomb in Jerusalem. You cannot go to Jerusalem and find the tomb of Jesus. Why? Because he is risen. And you you think through the spread of Christianity, and you think through Scripture, and and when it was written, if it was a lie, if none of this was true, all people had to do was go out the gate of Jerusalem, go over to the cemetery, go go in there and point and go, here is Jesus. Here are his bones. This has all been an elaborate lie. But that cannot happen because Jesus is risen. That is a real historical truth, but it has spiritual implications for us as well. Because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, there is the promise of our resurrection from the dead. Because he took the wrath of God for our sins, we are forgiven. But we now have eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he walked out of the tomb. And one day, our graves will be empty. One day, somebody can walk to our, 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 our grave site and point and say, look, there's nothing there. Because Jesus Christ is their Lord. And his resurrection is their resurrection. So in the hope of that resurrection, we're going to look at this passage together, which at first doesn't look like it has a lot to do with Easter. It actually takes place before Easter, but it has connections to and implications to the cross and to the tomb. So we'll look at that together. Let's pray for God's blessing on our time together in his word. Lord, we pray simply now that you would open our hearts and minds so we would hear your word and believe it. So we may receive and rest upon Christ as he is offered to us here in your word. And we ask this name of the one who is the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Luke 22, verses 54 through 62. Let's stand together now for the reading of God's word. Then they seized him and they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with them, for he too is a Galilean. Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, 
Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. You know, a look can tell you so much. A look from another person can tell you if you're loved or if you're despised. A look can tell you if that person is happy with you or they're doing best, they're doing their best to not try to strangle you at that moment. A look from a person can tell you if they're interested in what you're saying, if they're interested in being there with you, or it can tell you that they wish they were anywhere else but there with you at that time. And we all probably can remember the look our parents would give us. That look that said, if you do that, or you say that one more time, you do that one more time, it will be the last thing you do on planet Earth. <laughs> because a look can tell you so much. As we said, our, our passage this morning isn't your usual Easter passage. This fits more in the chronology of Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday. But there's something that happens here at Caiaphas, the high priest Caiaphas' house. It happens between Jesus and Peter that's worth our attention. It's, it's an interaction between Jesus and Peter that ultimately mirrors the interaction that Jesus has with his people. And it's an interaction that sheds more light on the cross and on the tomb, sheds more light on the glory of the cross and the glory of the tomb. The better understand the significance of interaction, we need to take a moment to think through what we know about Peter. When we are first introduced to him, he is Simon, and he's just a fisherman. And he's going through the normal routines of life as a fisherman. And then one day Jesus appears on the shore, and he calls Peter and his brother Andrew to follow after him so that they may become fishers of men. And from that point forward, we find that Peter is always close by the side of Jesus. He's always the apostle who's out front. He's the one who's the spokesperson for the group. And if we were to do a Bible quiz this morning and say, list all 12 apostles, who would you probably begin with? You'd probably begin with Peter, right? He's the most well-known of the 12, at least for the right reasons. He's the most well-known of the 12. Because he's one of the most dedicated of the apostles. He's one of Jesus' closest friends. Therefore, we find Peter is there for all these major events we read about in the gospel. Who was it that, that Jesus called to walk to him on the water? It was Peter. And Peter, in faith, walked on the water until he did what? Took his eyes off of Jesus, looked at the waves, and began to lose faith. But who was one of the few disciples that Jesus took with him on the mount to see Jesus transfigured into his heavenly glory? It was Peter. Who was there to feed him 5,000? It was Peter. Who was there to raising of Lazarus? It was Peter. Who, whose mother-in-law did Jesus heal? It was Peter's. We find that Peter was there through all the major events because he's the dedicated apostle. He's the faithful apostle. He loves Jesus. He loves Jesus to the point. He's so faithful and dedicated in his love to Jesus to the point that when they come to arrest Jesus, do you remember the story? Peter takes out his sword and he cuts off the ear of Malchus, who is the high priest servant, so he can protect his Jesus from being arrested. 
So on the surface, based off his apostolic resume, Peter is a really good and faithful apostle. Churches have been built in his names, in his name. We remember Peter. He's good, he's faithful, he's dedicated. But he can also be hard-headed. He had the personality of a person who often doesn't think before he speaks. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples about his upcoming death and resurrection. And Peter pulls Jesus aside, right? Takes him off the stage, pulls him aside and and, and begins to rebuke him. You imagine, here's Peter, the fisherman, rebuking the the, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the second person trying to Godhead. He says to him, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. The glory of your death and the glory of resurrection, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That had to be a stinging rebuke. He just loves Jesus. And he's rebuked. A little bit before our passage this morning, Jesus tells Peter that Satan has personally demanded to have Peter. Peter's response, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Two things are getting ready to happen. Do you remember Jesus' answer to him? I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter is good. That's a good apostle. He's a faithful apostle. He's a dedicated apostle. He loves Jesus. But he doesn't fully get it. And that leads us to our interaction here in Luke. The Lord's Supper has been instituted. Judas has left the upper room to go out and finalize his betrayal of Jesus. Jesus takes Peter and James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, and they go into the garden to pray. Remember, he tells them, I'm going to go out to pray. Will you please pray with me? And we remember this scene, don't we? Jesus lays his face in the dirt, and he pours out his soul to his Father in heaven, and he is so anguished, he is sweating droplets of blood, and he is saying, Father, if it be your will, please let this cup pass by me. Not my will be done, but yours. It's this, this agonizing scene, this soul-wrenching scene of prayer. And Jesus gets up, and what does he find Peter, James, and John doing? They're napping. As he's in anguish, they're catching up on their sleep. As Jesus is rebuking them for this, into the scene now comes Judas. And he comes with the religious leaders and some Roman soldiers. They've come to arrest Jesus. And Jesus has led to to Caiaphas, the high priest's house, to begin the trial. And on a side note, side note, There's a lot of divine irony in that scene that the high priest is there in the house of the high priest Caiaphas and Caiaphas refuses to recognize that the high priest is there. All the other apostles have run off. And here comes Peter, dedicated Peter, loving, faithful apostle. And he enters into the figure of lion's den so he can be near his Jesus. And we just read the story. There's a, there's a fire lit in the courtyard and, and Peter comes around to warm himself up and three times, three times he is recognized and three times he is either confronted or asked about his affiliation to Jesus and once he do three times, he denies knowing Jesus. 
Three times he says, I do not know this man. Now keep in mind, Peter had just caught the ear of a man to protect this Jesus. He has come into the heart of the enemy's territory to be near Jesus. This is faithful Peter. This is dedicated, loving apostle. But there's something about this situation that breaks him. He very quickly goes from faithful to faithless. Full of bravado to full of denials. It's a stunning fall of grace of a dedicated apostle to a committed denier. And not only does he deny Jesus three times, Matthew gives us this detail in his account of it. It says, Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. The the cursing, the, the swearing here is not Peter using filthy language. It's not, you know, if we were to hear him, it would be a bunch of blankety, blank, 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 blanks. But it, it's, it's a strong religious language. It's something to the effect of, I do not know this man, and may heaven curse me if I am lying. In, in Peter's third denial, he goes to the most extreme. It, it'd be like us saying in our day and time, God, strike me dead. May lightning come down from heaven and strike me dead now if I am lying to you. Faithful dedicated, loving Peter is now denying Jesus as strongly as he possibly can. And what does Luke say happens at that moment of Peter's third and strongest denial? And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. As Peter is denying him, Jesus turns and looks at him and there's eye contact. Peter's third denial is still hanging in the air. The sound of the rooster crowing is echoing in the courtyard. And Jesus turns and looks into the eyes of Peter. Peter has just confessed him to be his Lord. And he turns and looks at Peter, and Peter is broken. All he can do, he can't argue, he can't deny, he can't barter. What's he do? He gets up, he walks away, and he weeps bitterly. What was it that Peter saw in Jesus' look? What did he see that night in the eyes of Jesus that caused him to go from religious curses to weeping? And and not just weeping, but but this body-shaking, soul-wrenching sort of of weeping. What was that look of Jesus that took brave, brash Peter to this broken, forlorn man? What was in that look? We don't know for sure. Luke doesn't tell us that none of the gospel writers record that detail for us. But we do have the testimony, all this testimony of who Jesus is. And we have this testimony of what Peter was like after this evening. And so I believe this, we put it all together and it gives us a good idea of the look of Jesus for Peter that night. And we can deduce it wasn't a look of anger. It wasn't a frustration or shame or disavow or even surprise. How do we know that? 
Because the next time we read about Peter, what's he doing? The women have come back from the tomb and they said, the tomb is empty. Our Savior isn't there. And John records this little fact for us. I've told you before, it's one of my favorite little facts in the Bible. He says that he and Peter have a foot race to the tomb. And John gets there first. But we, we know it wasn't a bad look because Peter runs to the tomb at Easter morning. We know it wasn't a bad look because we'll see how Jesus treated Peter after the resurrection. I, I don't think Peter would have been racing John to the tomb if there was even a slight hint of, of, of anger or frustration or shame or disavow in Jesus' eyes. So what was the look? I believe Charles Spurgeon understands it best when he says, I think the look of Jesus was a heart-piercing look and a heart-healing look all in one. It was a look which revealed to Peter the blackness of his sin. And it was a look that revealed the tenderness of his master's heart towards him. That evening, when Jesus looked at Peter, and Peter looked back into his Savior's eyes, he first saw a look that pierced him to his very heart because it was a look that showed to him the depth of how sinful he really was. We think about the use of God's law. We talk about there being three uses of it. One of the main uses is that God's law reveals sin. It's not just a light. It's not just a spotlight. It's a floodlight that, that shines on all of our actions and exposes them for what they are. It shows our sin to be exceedingly sinful. It, it, it's a spotlight that shows us that our sin is never cute. Our sin is never funny. Our sin is never part of our personality. We would just say, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. It's, it's a floodlight that shows how sinful we really are. Scripture tells us this way. We were enemies of God. You want to know how sinful you are? You at one time wished you could have killed God. You wish you could have been there at the cross to jeer him on the cross. Matter of fact, scripture says we are such enemies of God, we are by nature children of wrath. That's how exceedingly sinful our sins are. And in that look that night, Peter saw that and understood it. I don't know if he had a full understanding of his sinfulness before that point, but that night, as he stood by the fire, and he looked through the window at his Jesus standing before the high priest. And as Jesus looked back at him and they met eyes, they met eye contact, there's little doubt he began to sense how deeply rooted in his heart and mind his sins are. So deeply rooted that this faithful, loving, uh, dedicated apostle was willing to say, may heaven strike me dead. If I'm lying about knowing this man. And all Peter can do is weep bitterly. You see, Jesus Christ is the supreme revelation of God. He perfectly reflects and represents God. And so when Peter saw Jesus, he saw God incarnate, God in the flesh, the word made flesh, the one whom the law aimed to reveal. And in that look, any doubt of Peter's sin, any doubt of how deeply it was rooted, how exceedingly sinful it was, any doubt of this was now gone. It showed how sinful Peter really was, how unfaithful he was, how unloving he was, 
how doubting of a sinner he really was. And that's why John Newton writes to Peter, when the servant spoke to him, he cursed and swore. But when Jesus looked at him, he wept. It was a look that was heart-piercing, and it showed how sinful he really was. So all he could do was stand up, walk away, and weep like he had never wept before. In that weeping where the tears just hurt coming out, and they hurt coming down. And they hurt because you can no longer cry and your heart is just broken. And that's Peter. Jesus gave him that heart-piercing look. But there's more to look, isn't there? And we notice because it's Peter who ran to the tomb. It's Peter who jumped out of the boat to swim to Jesus on the shore later on. It's Peter who would ultimately die for the sake of the gospel of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in that look, as much as there was the knowledge of sin that was in his heart, there was also from Jesus that look of divine loving grace. Here is your sin, Peter, and here is my loving grace for you. I think many Christians struggle thinking of God only as a judge. He's the God who's ready to to strike you down. If somebody sneezes and you don't say, God bless you, God's ready to just boot kick you down to hell. God is righteous, but he's also loving. He never loves at the expense of his holiness, but his love is perfectly holy. And that's one of the first attributes we're told of God we go back to the story of Adam and Eve, when, when, when Adam and Eve first sinned, what happened? God pursued them in love. He preached a promise of the gospel of love to them. And then in love, he clothed them with new garments of an innocent animal whose blood had to be shed to cover their sinfulness. And right there is this picture, a promise and picture of salvation. God never loves at the expense of his holiness, but his love is always perfectly holy. And that is what Peter saw in the eyes of Jesus at night. Not only did it pierce his heart, but it healed his heart in that perfect loving grace. Here's his sin, but here's also perfect love and grace. Now think about this. This is Peter's darkest hour. This is his darkest sin. His Jesus is in Caiaphas, the high priest's house. He is staying in this sham of a trial. Jesus knows he's getting ready to be beat within an inch of his life. He knows he's going to go on the cross. He knows he's going to suffer the wrath of the Father. He knows he's going to die on the cross. He knows he's going to be laid in the tomb for three days. And what does Jesus do? He refuses to abandon Peter. He denied And Jesus loved him. He invoked a heavenly curse from the one who is the creator of heavens and earth. Just feet away. He invokes a heavenly curse. And Jesus looks at him with love and grace and mercy. Do you want to know why Peter ran to the tomb this morning? Because he remembered that look. Do you want to know why Peter jumped out of the boat to swim to Jesus? Because he remembered that look. 
Do you want to know why Peter was getting so offended at Jesus' repeated questioning of him feeding the sheep? Because he remembered this look. Do you want to know why Peter was willing to be crucified upside down for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because one of the last things he remembered is that look of loving grace from his Lord and Savior. As much as that look showed the deepest, darkest places of sin in his mind and heart, Peter also saw the look of loving grace that forgives all those who will just believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That look that night pierced the very heart of Peter. And then it healed the very heart of Peter. And it was a look that changed everything for him that night for the rest of his earthly life and for all of his eternal life. One look changed Peter for an eternity. And that this morning we are gathered by trust and faith of the risen Lord. And we cannot reenact this scene because our Jesus who is physically, bodily Resurrected is also physically and bodily ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. So we cannot look to him physically in the eyes, yet his look is still made available to all of God's people through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Because it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to draw our attention to Christ. And in that drawing our attention to Christ, we see that look. That look that tells us first that we are sinners. Listen, this morning you may still be living under the lie that you are good enough to get to heaven on your own. You may still believe in Satan's lie that you can build up enough good work to have this treasury of good work so that when you die, God will meet you at the gates of heaven and say, you have done enough to merit my love and eternity with me. You are the good one. Welcome in good and faithful worker. Let me say this as clearly and lovingly and pastorally as available as possible. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. None of us are good enough to get on heaven on our own. None of us can do enough good works to merit the gates of heaven to be thrown wide open and for a prey to come in because we're one of the bestest people that's ever lived. How do we know this? Let me give you an example. Look to Peter. If if you take all of his life, just take his apostolic resume, he lived a good life. He followed Jesus every day for three years. You know, that's like going to church every day for three years. That's a, a close to 1,100 times of going to church. We have church once a week. And if we were to go to church once a week, every week, it would take us 21 years of going to church like Peter did. We don't. We don't go to church every Sunday, do we? We struggle with it. Peter would regularly join in with Jesus to pray. How many of us struggle to pray? How many of us made the choice to not pray with others to go to prayer meetings? Peter walked on water in faith. Go home and try it. Peter was willing to to maim and kill for Jesus. Would you? 
Peter was able to cast out demons. Can you? When we compare our lives and good works just to Peter, we fail and we fail miserably. And what we find with Peter in the Gospels, in his writings, is he never, ever, 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 ever held on to the notion that he could be good enough to earn the love of Jesus. Because it was Jesus who called him to follow after him. It was Jesus who suffered for him. It was Jesus who died for him. It was Jesus who was resurrected for him. It was Jesus who ascended for him. It was Jesus who so loved him first. So that Peter knew at the end of the day, he's just a sinner who needs a savior. Any, any inclination that he could be good enough was wiped out in that courtyard. He knew it was all about Jesus. Not what he has done, not what Peter has done, but what Jesus has done for him. My question is, do you know that this morning? Not the science school answer, not to make you look good in front of all the church people, but honestly, 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 do you believe that? Do you believe that it's all about Jesus? Do you believe that all your good works are but filthy rags before the holy God? Do you know it's all about Jesus and who he is and what he has done for you? So that when we truly look to Jesus and see him for who he truly is, then we see how truly sinful we are. We may look good to other people, but in the eyes of the holy God, we are sinners. And so we weep bitterly, at least in our souls, if not from our own eyes. See, the life of Peter tells us we're not good enough in heaven because we're like Peter. We are dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking sinners. Happy Easter. Yet the same Jesus who makes this known to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and his loving gaze is the same Jesus who looks down upon us in loving grace. You aren't good enough, but he is. You can't obey enough, but he has. You can't love rightly, but he does. It's not about you. It's about him. Alistair Begg has this wonderful sermon called The Man on the Middle Cross. And in it he says this. If we ever answer the question about why we can enter into heaven in the first person instead of the third person, we will never enter in. So the idea is this. If you were to die tonight and go and stand before God in heaven, he says, why shall I let you to heaven? And you go, well, because I, 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 instead of saying, because of Jesus, 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 then you do not get the gospel. It's not because of you. We don't say turn your eyes upon yourself. Turn your eyes upon who? Jesus. And all of his wonderful grace. We're not called to, to go on the cross to die for ourselves. We're called to go to the cross where Jesus Christ has died for us. And all we are called to do is to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ for salvation. So we may know this look of loving grace. We can't earn it. But Jesus freely gives it to whoever comes longing to know him in faith and love. And it's a look that will change your life. Like Peter, when we know this look 
uh, that exposes our sins but brings us to grace, then our lives become all about Jesus. We want nothing more than to know him more. We want to love him deeper. We want to live our lives for him. We want to follow his voice and we want to walk in his ways. It's a look that demands that you take your eyes off yourself and your own happiness and your own glory and for you to fix it upon the Lord of glory and whom is all the joy our souls can eternally contain. It's a look that changes everything. Have you seen that look? With the eyes of your mind and heart, have you seen that look? Have you forsaken your good works for the works of Jesus Christ? Has that look exposed to you how deeply rooted your sins are? And has it changed your life by the grace of Jesus Christ? Because it is the only look that will change everything for you. So may each of us place our gaze upon this look of Jesus. So that our hearts may be pierced. And our hearts be healed. So that our hearts will belong to Jesus alone. Pray with me.